Hey, it's Alana. And Katie. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow coming at ya. Welcome back, Black and Yellow Nation. It feels kind of sort of like spring. Katie, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good. I have my second COVID dose, my <gasps> second Fauci ouchie on the horizon on Saturday. So. What? Yeah, kind of sort of looking forward to that. I had like a gnarly reaction to the first dose. So I, oh, I'm either bracing myself or going to have no reaction whatsoever. But either way, I'm I'm excited that total inoculation is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll be free to do whatever. <sighs> I, there's a part of me that's like, you know what? Am I still going to feel comfortable to go in restaurants even when I'm fully inoculated? Like, I feel like there's going to mm-hmm. be a bit of a... Yeah, socialization, if you will. Yeah, and I bet you'll probably, or maybe you'll feel also that like maybe you could be a carrier, so maybe you would still be cautious. I don't know. I at least that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a mental prep that, or I guess a Mm -hmm. mental um, readjustment, I should say, that I'm bracing myself for. But either way, happy for inoculation. I will say that Easter, low key kind of sprung up on me how was your easter mm-hmm. i was not really aware it was easter until my mom was like hey what are your plans for easter and i was like when is easter yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then it happened but it was great it was fun yeah very similar i think it was the day before my fiance's family was planning easter slash uh, a joint birthday celebration since there's a couple of birthdays that fall around the beginning of april and i was like mm. oh yeah Easter. That's yeah. happening. Um, I guess it's it's one of those holidays where like I don't have a little one, so I don't necessarily have to prep anything. You don't have eggs la, around the like, house. Yeah, or like a la like Christmas presents or anything like that. hmm Yeah, we kind of slacked on that, but next <laughs> next okay. year. That's okay. No judgments. Baby boy is young. Like <clears throat> baby boy is not gonna hold it against you. He had creme brulee for the first time. He's living the fancy high life. Oh, did you make it? No, my mom did. But uh, he wanted more than two bites. That's for sure. Oh, he's got some expensive taste. You better Mm -hmm. watch out. Mm -hmm. Before you know, it, he's going to be like, mom, caviar, please. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Sorry. Let me not speak that to existence into the universe. Like maybe sushi. But that is probably the, the extent. But I mean, that's a very welcomed craving, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's heritage, um, but it'll be interesting because I don't like sushi. Really? FYI to people out there. Yeah. That's- I like seafood, uh, but not like in the sushi form, I guess. <laughs> Got it. So you're saying you like it. Is it like the raw thing or? I like it cooked. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the raw that gets me. The, the Got raw it. wrap, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I know people are always like, "Hey, you want to go to sushi?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> yeah, I mean that is one of those those sort of default. It's like Mexican, Italian sushi mm-hmm. for me. Indians always on that list. Okay, thing to note: never taking Katie out for sushi. Mm-hmm. I like my meat well done, please. <laughs> you like to know your meat is dead. Yeah, I do. I really do. <laughs> Makes me feel better. 
<laughs> one of my college roommates and my, one of, a very dear friend of mine, she is the exact same way. Like none of this bleeding on the plane. Like I like to know that my animals yeah. are dead. Yeah. The whole family always has to keep like a separate plate for me that is more well done than the rest. Oh, wow. Because they do like it. They like it. Uh, what is it? Rare. Medium. Yeah. Medium or medium rare. Okay. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Well, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you like it rare or medium or extra well done, we are happy to have you back for another episode of the show. (laughs) Um, This episode is totally off. (laughs) I feel like I was not ready for those those food uh, discoveries so early in this episode. But I like that I now know these about these things about you for our future dining dates. I love that. Yes. Maybe we'll just like go Italian, yeah, or Mexican or Indian. We 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 just won't go raw or steakhouse. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds fair. That sounds like a good idea. Get <laughs> done it? No, just get done. <laughs> yeah. So this episode is going to round out our deep dive into education, and I would say we're ending things on a high note, a really inspirational note. Uh, and oh, we're yes. really thrilled to bring you today's episode. And fun fact. You worked with today's guest. Yes, we went to grad school together. So that was very fun. We went to graduation together. We did a lot of things together. I love, I love it. There is a familiarity in the interview. So we're really happy to bring it to you guys. Yeah, I miss her. Uh, If you are a new listener, welcome. And thank you for sharing a bit of your day and time with us today. Feel free to kick back, relax, and subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And if you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back sharing this fun, loving space with you today. Yeah, we hope that you've enjoyed this deep dive into education that we've done for the past three. Now with this episode, what will be four episodes uh, from Mm -hmm. debating the need to go to college to the racism and anxiety that is standardized testing to making STEM more welcoming and inclusive for young girls and people of color. This deep dive Mm -hmm. has taught me a lot, pun Totally intended. And I was also super cathartic. I felt like we were able to explore topics or ask questions that a a younger Alana didn't feel like she was able to ask, but also was finally Mm. able to speak on some 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 educational truths that I think uh, I've had enough hindsight to kind of reckon with and and speak about honestly. Yeah, it's been really interesting for me too because normally I'm I'm in the advisor seat from a very professional standpoint where I don't talk about myself at all. And so this mm. is kind of nice where I can talk about my what I know from a professional standpoint, but also talk about my experience personally and kind of merge it together. Something that I've never really done before. Interesting. Did, yeah. Was there a, uh, an, an extra level of stress or pressure that you felt because this is your profession but also like we've all been students and right you wanted to yeah. accurately represent both kind of okay. um but also like at this point I also hope that everyone just knows that I don't know every <laughs> college <laughs> functions <laughs> I'm just speaking on and that's kind of I think where I purposely tie in per- personal experience where I'm like mm. Yeah, professionally, like this happens, but you know, this is how it pertains to me in my personal life. So, like, if you, you know, yeah, this is totally you know, specifically at my college, not at any other colleges. So, please, you know, don't don't hate me for <laughs> this as a general format. 
I feel that. No, I totally feel that. I also, uh, in ways, felt like I was talking to teenage Alana. You know how sometimes mm. they'll read in interviews, like in magazines or on podcasts, or like, if you could go back in time and talk to teenage you, what would you say? And I felt like a lot yes. of these episodes felt like I was talking to that young girl with test anxiety who had mm. no choice but to go to college. Um, and, uh, uh, now realizes that STEM needs to be a more inclusive field. Things, the things you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Things you know, things you learn along the way. Yeah. Sure. So, excuse me. Um, we, I had a burp. I'm sorry. We <laughs> knew we couldn't do a complete dive into education without talking about teachers, specifically teachers of color. We both had, I would say, aha moments right during the brainstorm where we realized, like, huh. Did we have teachers or professors of color when we went to school? Right. I don't know. Like, let's think back on that. And yeah, we had, I remember we had a, a moment of silence about that. <laughs> um, trying to think back of who, who in our lives, yeah. like when was the first teacher of color that we had? Like, what grade were we in? Who was that? And did we have any more since then all the way through college? And it was I'm pretty sure we had a moment of silence where it's like, oh, I, mm, I don't even, mm. yeah, oh, there was one. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's how it, they they kept popping into our minds. Like I felt like we both individually went back to kindergarten and sort of um, mentally walked through mm -hmm. the hallways and the classrooms, mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't necessarily like stay like locked in those memories, but we more like peeked in the window to be like, oh, hey, teacher. Mm -hmm. moving on to the next one and like looking for <laughs> the teachers of color because I in the process of brainstorming with you realized I had no teachers of color K through eight I had two in high school and two professors maybe three and I'm saying maybe three because one was so ethnically ambiguous I don't want to discount him altogether mm -hmm. um, but like a, a strong two in college I will say confident what about you? Mm. I was lucky enough to have a third grade teacher who identified as East Asian. Ooh. And my parents pushed me to that classroom. They were like, my child is going to be in that classroom no matter what. Yeah. And then um, in middle school, I had, I believe, a Pacific Islander teacher. And I also Ooh. had an East Asian teacher for one year. Um, and they were both men, which was very surprising. Uh, Interesting. In system. Yeah. So that was like a stick to them. You know, <laughs> make sure yeah. you take their class. And then um, I can't remember anyone in high school, but uh, in college I had two. But I think I had mentioned to you one of them was like a teaching assistant. Yeah. I don't know if that counts. I would um, say, yeah. I'll, I'll, well, let's give some love to the TAs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so then I had two in, in college, and then um, we were talking in, in the cultural studies graduate program. I only remember two, which is which seems really sad for cultural studies, and maybe yeah. I'm forgetting someone, but I'm pretty sure it was only two. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that, because my most, uh, I would say, impactful and formative professor of color was also in the cultural studies realm. He was my critical mm -hmm. race theory teacher Ooh. or excuse me professor because it was college um yeah. 
Professor Sean Eversley Bradwell, brilliant mind. He was also known to be the hottest professor on campus. Oh. So everyone wanted to take his class. And, you know, it's, I would assume, I'm going to make a a big assumption here about your third grade teacher and my critical race theory professor. Okay. I'm going to assume that both of these teachers had very high expectations for us. Mm. And we felt that as students and rose to that occasion. I'm sure your parents probably felt something very similar to push you into this third grade teacher's class. But having professors of color that looked like us and having like high standards and high beliefs in us made us better students. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't remember anything about third grade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Except, um, the only thing I remember about third grade was there was this boy who sat next to me and he got in trouble once because we were listening to her lecture or, or, or teach us something and he was playing with my hair and I had no idea. I was just like, why oh. is she yelling at him? And then I looked and he was just like sitting like lean with his arm on the tape on the desk, like leaning facing me. But I was obviously facing away from him and he was just like twirling my hair with his finger. Oh, which is a very yeah, like, weird thing to remember. Yeah. Like, it's like baby creeper vibes. Yeah. Um, that never happened again and nothing in that <laughs> creeper range, you know, he was very, he was very nice, but, um, yeah, it was just kind of strange and like, didn't have consent and all these yeah. other things. Yeah. That's, that's what that sounds like. That definitely sounds like, <laughs> like a baby me too situation happening. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's the only thing I rem- and he was a white boy and that's the only thing I remember about third grade. Huh. What an yeah. interesting stamped memory. I know. Okay. Um, because I was sitting there and he technically got in trouble because of sort of because of me, but it was his actions towards me. It was just a really confusing thing where I was involved, but I wasn't involved and Your I wasn't aware was I was just, involved. Was distracting. That's really my hair luscious. is just so luscious. You know, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Your hair has full on Rapunzel vibes and everyone wants mm-hmm. like to get their fingers in it. I guess. Problems. <laughs> fingers. <laughs> third grade problems but not a bad hair problem to have i must say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i am um, i remember this pro- pro- this particular college professor and his high standards uh a mainly because it was a 300 level college class oh, so wow. yeah already from the jump it's like if you're in this class which is part of the cultural studies um i guess school if you will there's no yeah. messing around here. Like everyone's done the sort of basic race classes and the secondary race and, and culture classes. And so if you were in this class, there was no messing around. And I remember how thankful I was to be in Prof. Sean's class mm. when Obama got elected. Oh, yeah. I remember we had critical race theory the day after the elections were called. And oh, my gosh getting kind of the same um song and dance from all of my white professors like this is a very historic yeah it was I think you know every you know it's like say wanting to say the right thing but not wanting to say so much of the right thing that you you risk maybe saying something out of turn or off color if that makes yeah totally yeah um and so I remember like getting kind of the same rundown from all of my white professors and then 
landing in Prof. Sean's class and the way that he was able to explain the gravity of this of the of of the win and to really contextualize it in a way that I think a lot of black students were feeling like this amazing mm. wave and weight, but we just couldn't put it into words to, to yeah. land in Prof. Sean's class and have him tell us why this moment was so important and talk to us about the gravity of this moment. Also, he told us that he, him and his wife and their friends were partying so hard the cops came. Quote, <sighs> they were shocking and rocking until the cops came a knocking. And I was like, yes, like, this is why I want a black professor, especially in these culturally rich moments like that. It just felt yeah. like one of those felt like one of those moments that I, I will always look back of my in my college time and and be eternally grateful and thankful for it. Yeah, I don't even remember what that day was like for me in school. I don't think anyone said anything, or at least I and can't see. Remember. I think if I didn't have a black professor, I don't know if I would have remembered it as yeah. Clearly, but I think that that's the importance of teachers and professors of color. I think that they're able to teach us in ways that are meaningful to us and also culturally relevant ways. Yes. That yeah. I think stick with you or, or stick with students mm -hmm. uh, long after. You remember, yeah. Yeah. And like long after, I think the effect of the classroom has worn off, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Because I do think mm -hmm. once we graduate from college, and are looking to get into the work field and the, or the workforce. Um, I think when we get into the searching for jobs and going on first interviews, second interviews, really trying to get the jobs that we set out to get with our college degrees, I think there's mm -hmm. still a little bit of the like scholastic construct that follows us in terms of, oh yeah, totally. you know, getting everything right, wanting to meet all requirements, have all proper paperwork and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um and so I do think there's an, an interesting sense of how good a teacher is and how long they stick with you based on the lessons that they have taught you and if they still feel uh, viable and, and potent today. Mm -hmm. Totally. You said that your, your professors of color were male. That's interesting. Because yeah, I my middle like school ones were. Interesting. Because I, I feel like mm -hmm. when I close my eyes and think of what a teacher is, I feel like I close my eyes and see a middle-aged white woman. And I don't feel like I'm alone. In <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people who think that. Yeah. I, I don't know how white women became the sort of default thought of a teacher, which mm. is interesting because we generally in our society think of the quote unquote smarter sex of being male. So that's also been something that has. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. That sort of yeah. jumps out where it's like, well, we think of males as the quote smartest gender, but yet the people who we think of to teach our kids to instill them with intelligence and smarts tend to be women. That was something I kept mm. coming back to in the research, and I'm not entirely sure why. I wonder if it's maybe partially because, you know, traditionally women are seen as caregivers and the people who raise children and kind of like, you know, homeschool them in a sense, right? So maybe it yeah. has something historically to do with that mm. so yeah arguing, then you wonder about no, so you're talking about behavior and uh quote-unquote traditional education yeah because i do feel like school is very militarian where it's like you need to learn to sit in your seat for six hours and raise your hand if you need to if you need something or ask a question and you know following yeah. rules and yeah disciplinary you know. yeah, yes thank no, you that works <laughs> Do you feel like you noticed in hindsight 
that we didn't have a lot of professors of color because I feel like that's one of those those uh, things that you realize after you're out of the scholastic system. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I I did not notice, and it's it makes it sadder because in middle school and high school I had six professors a year, maybe six, maybe up to like nine professors or teachers a year, depending on what my electives were. Mm. So it's like I had more than just one teacher like in elementary sure i had up to like six to nine teachers in a year and out of all of those people i only ever had two like that which is mind-boggling and i mean i I know i live in a a white suburban neighborhood um but but there was definitely like more than you know only white people there um and yeah i i don't think i ever thought about it i don't think i ever questioned it uh, I thought, I think for me, like the biggest thing was, oh my God, the men are teachers. Because uh, I didn't have a male oh. teacher until middle school. And it was a weird adjustment because literally majority of my teachers in middle school were male. And Ooh, I was used to only female teachers up until seventh, seventh grade was when I went to junior high, quote unquote junior high. Sure. Um, and, and majority, yeah, I would say... My science teacher was female, which is also an interesting thing. I um, had a female science teacher too. Okay, actually. yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. Um, my PE teacher was also female, but all of my other teachers, for the most part, were men. Mm. Aside from like a few here and there. And it's interesting that you and I, coming off of last week's episode about women yeah. in STEM, we both had female science teachers. Also, one of my one of the black. Uh, teachers that I had in high school also happened to be a my biology teacher, Miss McQuarrie. She oh. was female and she was black, so it was like boom, oh boom, double whammy. Like I guess my high school was ahead of some curve or saw something that that other yeah. schools didn't. Um, but it's an interesting gender gendering that you notice the 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 male teachers versus female teachers because I think I only had one male teacher K through eight. And then a pretty equal mix of both in high school and college. Mm. And the male teacher in seventh grade stuck out like a sore thumb. Oh, yeah. I think it was because it was Catholic school. And (laughs) yeah, I went to Catholic school K through eight. Okay. Still working through that. Um, Okay. (laughs) uh, I I didn't know that. So yeah, that changes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not really something I love talking about. I, I feel like. Catholicism and feminism do not always uh, get along. And so oh, I've, yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had many, many moments and continue to have many, many moments where I um, have a hard time squaring my Christian mm. upbringing mm-hmm. with my current feminine and feminist identity, which is an identity that I take super seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that's a daily reckoning. But uh, I do remember having a male teacher in seventh grade because I remember noticing how when a male teacher taught a co-ed class, the way that it amplified the other male students versus oh. when taught by women. I do think there is something, and I, you just touched on it a little earlier about when about women being disciplinarians. Mm-hmm. And so in a co-ed classroom with a woman at the helm teaching young girls and boys, there was something that almost in my kid brain, I felt like, oh, this is a better behaved class with a woman at the helm versus 
a guy teaching essentially teenagers. Oh, yeah. It was definitely something that that I remember thinking as in that class. Like, why does this feel different? And not yeah. really noticing how gender played into that. Yeah, because no, I mean, I totally agree because I'm thinking even like my seventh grade English professor or teacher. I'm sorry. Um, I remember there was one time. <laughs> No, multiple times, actually, where a student would fall asleep because of his first period and oh. he would just leave them and like the bell would ring and everybody would leave. And he'd be like, don't wake him, just leave him. And he'll wake up and then he'll be late to his next class. It's fine. Uh, oh. But he did this to multiple students. But I've never had like a female teacher do that before. Yeah. Like, I mean, that joking, you know. Yeah, that's a different way of disciplining kids because I'll tell you one thing. If I were in that teacher's first period class and I fell asleep once, that would be the last time I fell asleep. Like, uh uh-uh, because <laughs> that's humiliating. Yeah, um, I had second period with them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I showed up like 10 minutes late. <laughs> Savage. Um, yeah, interesting. I. It is interesting the way that, that men and women discipline kids, especially at that age. The teenage... Oh, yeah age and stage is an interesting one and i do think that who is teaching us definitely shapes and forms uh our high school years but i think also like beginning thoughts of who we want to be as people yeah you know because i think k through eight you're just like following directions but by the time you get to high school you're like okay who do i want to be what do i want to do why Mm -hmm. am i here what does this all mean Mm -hmm. and i do think that teachers play a big hand in that but i'm right there with you i did not notice that most of my teachers were white until way after the fact, because I don't think this system is designed to have us notice that yeah, our, our teachers are mostly white. Like, I think that I think that that's part of uh, what needs to change about the system is being able to notice in real time, like, wait, something isn't right. We need more diversity in the classroom. We need more mirrors and windows as mm-hmm. per the title of today's episode but I do think that my parents reinforced because my parents it seems like your parents too sent both of us to predominantly white schools and so my Mm -hmm. parents way of counteracting the lack of teachers of color in the classroom is to put was to raise me in an area full of really successful smart black people oh so like yeah the, my doctor and my dentist and the mailman yeah. and many business owners around that we would use and support all were black. And so there was a lot of black That's success awesome. around me yeah. growing up, which I think did help to counteract um, the lack of diversity in the classroom. I do think from an early age, I absorbed like, oh, black people can be and do anything. Just look yeah. around. I have That's nothing awesome. telling me otherwise. Yeah, kind of in a different lens reminds me of um, like with, with Tiffany and with other individuals that I've, I've come across and met in STEM where they're like, well, I went to a predominantly female school where you just don't question. Yeah. Because there are no men to counter that idea of you saying, Oh, I don't think I can do this because I'm female or I don't think I can do this because of this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause all you see is that. Right. And if you can see it, then you can be it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So with all that said, today we are talking about the importance of having teachers of color in the classroom, creating mirrors and windows in the classroom. And we have a brilliant guest on today talking about it. But first, let's put our money where our mouth is, shall we? Yes, let's go. 
So this is our small business portion of the show where Katie and I like to spotlight a black owned business and an Asian owned business that we think are developing really great products that are servicing voids in the community, but also serving as a way to engage in everyday economic protest. Even though the BLM protests of 2020 are over, that does not mean that you cannot continue to protest. Mm-hmm. Economic protest, protest with your dollars is one of the most effective, easiest ways that you could protest in your everyday life. This part of the show is here to help you in that economic protest or in your quest to diversify your dollars. So mm-hmm. I will start... Um, I chose Brown Girls Stationery at Brown Girls Stationery on Instagram. All of this school talk for these past Mm -hmm. (laughs) four episodes has got me thinking about back to school supplies. And specifically, I was wondering if there were any black owned companies that made backpacks for black girls that featured their likenesses on them. When I was a kid in school, uh, that was not a thing. There were plenty of backpacks with your favorite Disney princess, your favorite superhero, your favorite American girl mm-hmm. uh, character. Barbie also was was making appearances on backpacks here and there, uh, but never any black girls, never anyone that looked like me. And so in doing this episode, I wanted to know if there were any companies that serviced this uh, this part of our community. And sure enough, there is. Not only is there a Black-owned uh, back-to-school accessories and supplies company, it is owned by a young Black girl who helped, oh. who, in partnership with her mom, launched this company, oh, which wow. was very exciting to discover. So, um, oh my God, I'm just like lost in my notes here. So sorry. So her name is Camaria Warren, she's 11 years old, and she, with the help of her mother, launched oh this company called Black Girls Stationery. And she did it because she was looking for backpacks and supplies that featured people that looked like her or people in her community. And mm. she noticed that there was none. She also, in a separate interview, uh, in, when talking about why she started Black Girls Stationery, was very quick to also point out that in terms of role models and representation, when you're in that younger part of being, like, I guess the older part of being a kid, but not quite a preteen, role models mm. can feel um, sort of scant. There's not a ton of role models out there for that age group. And so... Yeah. Kamira and her mom wanted to change that. And so they started Black Girl Stationery. You can get backpacks, notebooks, all the things you need for back to school. It's very reminiscent of American Girl, where they there's a bunch mm. of different characters for you to choose from. You know, you develop mm. your rapport, your your relationship with one of the characters, and then you collect all of her merchandise. So That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's so fun. Like it's really, really a great concept. And I mean, Hats off to Miss Warren and her mom who spotted this void in the marketplace yeah. and fulfilled it. So Black Girls Stationery, I will drop a link in show notes. What you got, oh Katie? She's only 11? Oh, my uh, gosh. I know. And she <laughs> manages a team of 15. Like, what? Oh what was I doing at 11? Not that. Didn't even know that you could do business. I didn't right? even know that was a thing. Ugh. Hats off to you, Queen. Get all the dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's saving up. She's saving up. Yeah. For college. She's decided she's going to college for business. Yes, 
There we go. <laughs> Actually, that's what um that's what my business is gonna touch on. So um I chose the flower box spelled F-L-O-U-R, like the bakery item, uh, which is a small bakery cafe in Seattle, my backyard, that originally was born from a college hobby Ooh, and then expanded. Huh. Yeah. Uh, the flower box makes handmade filled brioche donuts, cinnamon rolls, and locally roasted coffee. Everything is made with natural ingredients, no preservatives, and they always make everything to create... Um, like a different spin or like a unique spin on, on desserts and breakfast items. So each week they have different donut flavors. Um, I definitely remember seeing an everything bagel donut and a creme brulee donut at one point in the past. I'll take a dozen. Yes, I know. Right. (laughs) Owner Pamela Vong said that they had never baked or cooked prior to college. And once they started college, they just became obsessed with baking and they decided to change their major to business to pursue baking as a career. And so Pamela said baking not only boosted their self-confidence, it gave them a sense of purpose and it relieved the stresses of college homework and assignments and tests. And so if you're interested, you can pre-order online at www.theflowerboxseattle.com or purchase a gift card if you want to pick up some baked goods once we're all vaccinated. I bet Pamela Vong was her teacher's favorite student because if you are baking up a storm someone has Mm -hmm. to eat all of those tasty confections Mm -hmm. and i mean i would be filling my professors to the brim with tasty morsels (laughs) of of everything just to make sure that you know i was on their good side all the time except we can't accept it we're not allowed to accept those things unless it's communal because it's like a bribe wait so wait really Really? So this whole apple for the teacher or like giving gifts to the teachers for holidays, teachers aren't technically supposed to be able to accept that? At least in college, they're not supposed to accept it. Even advisors it. and like uh, people who uh, like uh, receptionists at the front desk. Like I remember there I had a student once who would always make all of the baked goods like pumpkin bread and other mm. and he would be like hey I made this for everybody in the office and we would not be able to accept it unless it was for everybody in the office if we're if everybody's taking an equal share or oh. is you know taking it if they want to and put it in the back room for everybody then we can all take it but if it's only for like me or for Got one it. person at the front desk then it's kind of like he's bribing them to get what he mm. wants out of registration you know Okay, okay. I can't Mm -hmm. hate on that. That's just equality and fairness in education. Like, I'm not going to hate on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, I take it back. But even still, go visit, go visit Pamela Vuong and get some, some flower box, please, Mm because all of that sounds delicious. And I am stuck here. Beautiful. Those donuts are beautiful. I do miss going into a good bakery. That is something I've definitely missed in the pandemic is walking into a place where things are freshly baked. Breads and cookies and cakes. Yeah. Yeah. And just like smelling what freshness and like good baking smells like. I do mm-hmm. miss that 100%. Oh, yeah. Well, we will drop both of these. Uh, we'll drop links to both of these businesses in the show notes. And let's kick into today's guest intro and then today's interview. She's awesome. We think you are going to love her. So yes. Ava Thomas is an equity consultant who has a strong background in engaging social and educational justice dialogues, initiatives, and actions. 
In her facilitative and partnership roles, she prioritizes and employs dialogic models, collaborative processes, and inclusive practices. One of her greatest skill sets is the ability to analyze an organization, institution, or corporation from a systems-wide inquiry approach and generate a set of co-constructed ideas to advance justice-driven and equitable outcomes in Mm -hmm. and beyond the workplace. Yeah, you could just go with that alone. She's awesome. (laughs) Ava, (laughs) that's all you need. We don't need all the other stuff. Uh, But I'll continue uh, because she is that awesome. Ava holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Community Psychology and a Master's of Arts degree in Cultural Studies from the University of Washington, Bothell. She also obtained her Program Administrative Certification from the Danforth Educational Leadership Program at the University of Washington, Seattle. There are more than one campus. In the daytime, Ava is the Assistant Director of Racial and Educational Justice for the North Shore School District. Through all of her work, Ava grounds her practice at the intersection of Black feminist thought, cultural studies, critical pedagogy, and educational leadership and policy. Ava, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to um, be in this space and engage in this conversation with you. We're excited to have you. I know that you also know Katie, so it's it's like having a friend on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so let's just get to the first question, which is why don't you tell our audience a little bit of, a little bit more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, so a little bit about me. Um, ancestral roots are really important to me, and so are names. And so I'd like to start out a little bit with that. Um, my ancestral roots, so on my dad's side of the family, um, they're from Wadadley, which you might not be familiar with on a map, um, but that was the indigenous name of the island that was colonized by Christopher Columbus, and he named it Antigua, and that's in the Caribbean. And so that's from my dad's side of the family. And then before that, from West Africa, and they were part of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, on my mom's side, my grandma grew up on a small farm in Canada, and her family um, emigrated from Germany. So that's just a little bit about my ancestral background <laughs> and the importance wow. of yes yeah so a lot of lot going on <laughs> um also the importance <laughs> of naming is really important to me and so on um my dad's side his grandma is the one that raised him um, on the island of Wadadley and I got to go there a couple years ago and meet that side of the family for the very first time and my first legal name is not Ava it's actually Keziah and Kazaya was my um, great grandmother's name on that side. And so I just, I wanted to bring that up too, because that's important as well. And then my middle name is Louise, which is after uh, my great grandma on my mom's side. And so it's just, it's been full circle. And so I've been really happy to be able to explore <laughs> all of that and learn more about my family. <laughs> um, and then just part of, you know, mm. the work that I do. Um, you know, I'm in I'm in public education, so preschool through 12th grade, and I really believe that you can't separate the personal from the political. And to me, that's all about Black feminism, thinking about you know Black futures, Black women's futures, and how that sh- shapes into and projects into education. And also, I don't like to be limited and boxed in by boundaries either. So, what's an education? You know, outside of that is also informing education. So that's important to me. And then cultural studies, that layer too. So how are institutions impacting and shaping one another? And remembering that, you know, it's not that the schoolhouse is like 
in a community and the, the community has to adhere to the guidelines that, which are oftentimes Eurocentric and racialized guidelines within education, but how mm-hmm. is actually the schoolhouse entered into community and what does that mean and what does that look like? So just kind of that paradigm shift is important. And then lastly, I, in my work in various settings, I fight for justice and education. I have chills with that entire work <laughs> breakdown. Thank you so much for breaking it all down. And let's actually venture into the schoolhouse, shall we? I'll yes. I'll start with the big general question, which is how do students benefit from having teachers of color in the classroom? Yeah, so I'll start. I mean, representation is so, so, so important. And, you know, in my school district, we talk about windows and mirrors. And so kids need to see people who look different than them. And kids also need to see people who look similar to them and might Mm -hmm. share similar backgrounds and experiences. So if I'm thinking about students of color and teachers of color in the classroom, that's an opportunity to build um, mirrors. And that oftentimes is not developed and built into education because the settings are predominantly white teachers. And so this really, really, really does matter for students of color to see people who look like them as educators. And that signals to them that that's a career path for them. That's something that they can see themselves doing because they see themselves in front of the room or even within the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also epistemologies too. So like ways of knowing, ways of being in the classroom, that's also impacted by educators of color that are in the classroom. And bringing those different, um, you know, experiences based on personal knowledge, um, things that have happened to them, you know, things that they've gone through, that's all embedded into um, how they teach and how they go about teaching and also the types of knowledge that they're bringing. You know, education is so much more beyond textbooks and curriculum. You know, how do we share, how do we share space? How do we build place? Um, you know, how do we come together and solve real world problems? I know that you did a podcast on standardized testing and how it is racist. And yes, it is. And so, you know, I think about going beyond that in education. It's so much more than filling in bubbles on a spreadsheet. You know, <laughs> it's about connection and what we want to see in the yes. future and how we write ourselves into the future. <laughs> I'll stop Snaps there. all around. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss hearing you talk. Oh my gosh, so many, so many good things. Oh, thank you, Kate. It's it, being in space with it, you. It, <laughs> yeah, is it? I mean, well, you and I both know we're in education. We both know it. You don't see a lot of professors and teachers of color. You just don't. And yeah. so, our next question is: You know, being someone who sees preschool through twelfth grade, is it difficult to recruit teachers of color? Is it difficult to retain? them? Is that challenging? And maybe why do you think it's challenging? Yeah. So, so I'll say that it depends if it's difficult because it depends on if the work in a school district or a higher ed institution is authentic Mm. or performative. And when the work Mm. is authentic, (laughs) when when the work is authentic, (laughs) teachers of color and professors of color can tell. Just like period. <laughs> and you know, I <laughs> and I think about this as, you know, we have to start this cyclical loop um, at mm. retention rather than recruiting and hiring. Because if mm, educators right. of color are seeing the action happening in an authentic way, 
And if they're feeling seen and heard and valued and like they belong, that is your best recruiting tool. But, you know, we have to start with that retention. If educators Mm -hmm. of color are feeling like they are seen and heard and valued in classroom spaces, in educational spaces, they can become your best recruiters. And, you know, I think that Mm -hmm. we have to be reframing and thinking about how we see recruiting and how we're defining recruiting. Um, You know, in my school district, we've increased the administrators of color since 2017-2018 school year by 112.5%. That's in a few years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, is it, it, can it be difficult? I mean, it depends on what difficult is. Difficult looks like breaking down, uh, difficult looks like barriers, but Mm. how we solve that is breaking down barriers. Mm. You know, and we have to ask ourselves why there's Mm. these disproportionalities in education and go back to when public ed you know, was in this moment of um, desegregation. It wasn't that the white students and the black students then went off to a a neutral space and started building place together. It was literally that black students were busted to white schools, which is then white spaces. And then, oh, well, which teachers are already there? It's the white teachers. And which teachers are now probably not going to get hired? The black teachers. And so we have to think about that legacy today and how that impacts the disproportionalities today, but also like racialized policies and practices that are prohibiting and operating as barriers of hiring and recruiting educators of color. Mm -hmm. And once you remove those barriers, then that's when you see those numbers increase. I want to be in your classroom. If you ever are teaching in a classroom, teaching a seminar on anything, I want to be there. <laughs> I'd love to invite you. <laughs> I've never thought about the way that I define the word difficult and now hearing you talk about it in context of education, but I feel like also you can drop it down into the sieve of life. I'm gonna look at that word a little bit differently and what it means and how we can overcome it and break through those barriers. I think that was really, really powerful. So thank you for telling us that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was like listening to like a keynote or like a book. <laughs> It's very TED Talk. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Welcome to my TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be great. I'd oh, be there. Um, so you, I mean, we, so you've talked a little about um, having teachers of color in the classroom. So now we kind of want to talk about, does the quality of education differ um, or I guess suffer if teachers are mostly white or does does it improve you know when there are diverse teachers in the class well of course it does but you know like what are some of the ways that it does improve when you have diverse representation in the front of the classroom yeah and so so diversity is always important but we think about representation it only goes so far right and so you know when we're thinking about Um, diversity among educators, it's not about meeting quotas. It's not about saying that we have diversity. It's not about Mm -hmm. saying that we have representation. This is about moving towards justice and it's Mm -hmm. about eliminating barriers. And it also depends on what you mean by quality of education. You know, it's not just that, you know, you put a bunch of diverse representation and identities in the room and you snap your fingers and then you get justice. Like, how are people moving together? You know, Mm -hmm. what what are we talking about? Are we building lines of solidarity 
and partnerships and equitable collaborations in our school environments? Are we breaking mm-hmm. down, you know, and disrupting and dismantling power? You know, and we also have to think about state and federal constraints that can serve as yes. barriers. And we have to think about our sphere of influence anyways. You know, what can we be mm-hmm. fighting for in the immediate and in the now? And what also can we be fighting for and advocating for in the long term, not just within, you know, a classroom and a school and a district, but also thinking about education beyond the schoolhouse? How can we continue to mm-hmm. educate and be in education with each other, even beyond these box and boundary lines and advocating and fighting for, you know, justice. That's what we need. That's what we want. (laughs) So, yes. So in terms of, yeah. And so in terms of, does the quality of education suffer when teachers are mostly white? I mean, I think that, you know, I think that it can suffer if there's not this critical lens on what type of schooling Mm. is happening, you know, because white people can be co-conspirators in education too. We need white people to fight Mm -hmm. alongside of us and to amplify the voices that have been Mm -hmm. speaking up for over 400 years and since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And so what does a white teacher's presence look like and what should it look like? But also we need people Mm -hmm. of color in positions of power because we need to be paid for our emotional and intellectual labor in order to dismantle a racist and oppressive education system. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I could not agree enough. Uh, You were just talking about white students for a second. I want to actually sorry. You were just talking about white teachers for a second. I actually want to ask about white students. Mm -hmm. I want to ask, how do white students benefit from having an instructor of color? And I'm asking that question because I have a bit of a theory here. Mm -hmm. I believe it's important vital and crucial for students of color to see themselves represented in the classroom. But I would argue that it's incredibly impactful for white students to have professors of color in the classroom as well, because if these white students only interaction with, let's say, blackness is through uh, social media, is through fashion, is through music, then that's being dropped down into a sieve of black is cool. But we might not necessarily be uh, exposing our white students to the black educator or the black intellect. Mm -hmm. Does that theory land or am I off base? Of course, your theory lands. It's totally correct. (laughs) Yes, I 100% support it. And that's because, you know, earlier I was talking about this concept of mirrors and windows. So for students of color seeing educators of color, that's an opportunity to build mirrors. But for white students to see educators of color, that's an opportunity to build windows Mm -hmm. and for them to have an experience, an educator that doesn't look like them. And that helps them get insight into experiences that are different than their own cultures that are different than their own, you know, histories that look different than their own. And that's Mm -hmm. very vital to Mm -hmm. an all-encompassing, holistic educational experience. And they also need to see people of color in leadership roles. And that's about undoing biases about who can and who can't do things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, students, any student grows up to become an adult and they might be sitting in a hiring chair. So what can we do in terms of preparing white students while they're still a youth, 
for then when they become an adult and they're sitting in that hiring chair in public education, determining who they're going to hire, determine who they see as of worth and value, you know, as being an asset to um, a school district or an education system. That work doesn't start as an adult. It shouldn't start as an adult. It needs to start as a youth. It needs Mm -hmm. to start young. As soon as kids hit the public school, um, sector. It needs to happen in preschool, kindergarten, all the way through 12th grade, because it's this process of, you know, socializing and we have to un and re-socialize students out of biases and into thinking that is rooted in wholeness and community and belonging and solidarity. And so teaching white students what that looks and feels like from a young age can be huge, hugely important for their current experiences, but also their future ones. I love that answer. And also, I think I'm renaming this this episode. It's going to be called Mirrors and Windows. I have read about that concept, but I love I love it in practice. I'm obsessed with it. And I think that we need more of that in education and in life in general. So thank Mm, you so much for that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So we've talked about students, we've talked about teachers, and that is, you know, part of the total education. You know, you you also have community, you have family, you have parents, you have guardians, even I would even say siblings. And so how or do, I guess, student or, oh my gosh, do parents of students attending these schools impact the way, I guess, diversity is in terms of who they may want to be a teacher or who they may want their students to be in a classroom with, or I guess, does that even factor at all? Because I don't really know how um, K through 12 works behind the scenes. Yeah. So one of the things that we've talked about is um, the, the vital importance of building and sustaining family and community partnerships, mm. but also engaging in this process of like co-constructing Um, different ideas and opportunities for students and for educators and for families and community members. Um, You know, all of the power can't be concentrated in this hierarchical scale that's common in education where the people at the top, the people in district leadership or building leadership have the most power and then it trickles down from there. And if you're a student, you know, you have less power. If you're, ha- if you're a family member or community member, you have even less power. We're really trying to shake that up and try to um, readjust and reshape and reframe power. And so um, I definitely think that families, and, and I say families because it's not just parents who are raising our students. It can be grandparents. It can be aunts, uncles, any type of family. Um adopted um, kids, you know, like adoptive parents. And so we have all this range of, you know, family who's really raising our kids. And so just kind of honoring um, that is really important. And, um, you know, when I'm thinking about hiring and retention of staff of color and diverse staff, um, we do have opportunities for families to impact the increase of educator representation in schools, but also impact the increase in diversity that students are seeing in the curriculum. And so two mm-hmm. examples I have. Um, one, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so for one, we have a district racial and educational justice committee that's composed of, you know, educators, administrators, students, um, families, community members. 
And we have subcommittee branches of that. And one of them is the hiring and retention subcommittee. And what they've helped us do is they helped us design a staff of color coalition that then contributes to retaining staff of color. And they helped us map out this whole plan for the Staff of Color Coalition, kind of the main components and the themes. And that happened um, a year and a half ago, and it's still running today and continuing to grow. And that was due to the various types of influence that we've had in, in our district. Yeah. So there's that. And then number two is we're engaged in this ethnic studies pilot process right now, where we, and, and that also has various teams on it with also, you know, educators, administrators, students, um, families, and community members. And there, and, and together, we're all designing preschool through 12th grade ethnic studies frameworks because we see ethnic studies as a movement, not just an individualized class. And we don't want it to just be based off of chance. You know, depending on what teacher you get, you might get to experience ethnic studies. Yeah. No, this is this needs to be a movement in teaching mm. and learning and education. And we want it to happen P-12. So that's what families are helping with. Um, and then also we are developing a standalone high school course, which we would like to move towards getting uh, it being a high school grad requirement. So that so those are a couple examples of how mm. families are shaping and influencing what happens in our district. Yeah. Dang. Fantastic. <laughs> it, it's amazing. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really is. My breath is taken I, away. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I I I love I love this work and the work needs to be done like I said authentically, but it needs to be done mm. with people who are not just educators, because this needs to be a community-based, holistic education. Yes. 100%. Oh yeah. It's not to be the downer, but um, <laughs> why do we, as people of color, seemingly not notice that we were taught by mostly white teachers? Because Alana and I had this conversation earlier, and that's why, partially why we invited you as well, is we were thinking about it and we're like, wow. We had all these white teachers. Do we have teachers of color? I, I can't even remember if we had one. And why is that not questioned as people of color, as students of color? Yeah. And so, you know, there's this common socialization, like I talked about before, mm. and this kind of set of unwritten expectations about mm. who we see as teachers and who we see as educators in classrooms. So I think that could be one. And, you know, kind of this subconscious bias within our experiences. But mm -hmm. I also, you know, I, I also can't give a generalized answer because each person of color can have a different experience with that. You know, my, my personal right. experience, I went to predominantly white school settings, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade. And I, I had these feelings of, you know, have kind of trying to make sense of what I was experiencing by different teachers in different classrooms. And I remember I literally had mm. one teacher of color <laughs> in my K-12 education experience. And that was in ninth grade. And I remember being in her classroom and I felt like I belonged. I felt like it was a place for me. I felt like I was finally mm. seeing someone that looked like me, you know, in the classroom. I, I still didn't make the, the conscious connection that that was the only teacher of color I'd had and that most of my other teachers were white, you know, but 
I was Mm. getting that feeling. And so even if, you know, for me personally, even in my own experience, even though I couldn't fully articulate that, that most of my teachers were white, I had various feelings that I was trying to make sense of. I just couldn't, you know, articulate and contextualize them, you know, but I, but I talked to different students of color right now at, you know, our high schools and our middle schools, and they are noticing that, Hey, you know, I, most of my teachers are white. That needs to change. What's going on with this? How can I help make changes? Um, and so, you know, I think that there's this kind of broader developing critical consciousness for students of color, but I Mm -hmm. also am hearing it from some white students as well, who are really taking on these co-conspirator roles of I'm seeing this and this needs to change. And so, you know, like I said, it depends Mm. on your personal experiences. I think even if we can't contextualize it at the time, we're seeing it because there's some type of recall process that can happen. That happened for me when I was in college. And then I was able to reflect back and go, oh, ding. Okay. Yeah, I did have mostly teachers of color or mostly white teachers. I only had one teacher of color. Mm -hmm. And this is why. (laughs) This is why. I'm seeing Mm -hmm. because of some of the educational um, spaces that students are on their own creating, I'm starting to see now that there's this kind of movement of resistance and education among youth who are trying to reclaim agency in their own educational experiences and collaborate together. And they're, they're seeing it now. They're able to make sense of it now. I'm not saying um, it's all students, but I'm saying I'm seeing this group of students, you know, various students across our schools mm-hmm. that, are, that are noticing. Wow. Can you talk more about this, uh, the student resistance and education? It's it's piquing my interest only because I feel like my generation, we were we might have had these feelings. We were not as active, not as engaged as this younger generation is. And I'm just really interested to know, like, what that looks like and and more about how it's playing out. Yeah, there can be, I mean, resist. there's various types of resistance in education. And so I'm seeing it with you know, students kind of shaping and reshaping how black student unions are formed and what they're doing within their spaces. You know, I'm seeing Latinx student unions formed. Um, I'm even seeing like pride or like LGBTQ student unions formed. Um, so all these different types of groups that are forming. And also, you know, we, we also have this student board, which is like a student um, board that then consults with our, our adult school board. They're also engaged in these conversations about what needs to change in education. I see, so I see these different opportunities that are opening up, but I also see students that are saying, Hey, I'm coming into this critical consciousness about what I'm noticing, and B, I want to do something about it. And I also think there's this big wave of digital activism that we're seeing, and kids are able to share resources and talk, you know, across and beyond schools and school districts in a way that's bringing them together in virtual settings. Um, And so they're able to kind of digitally organize, and then they're able to take that information back into the schoolhouse and kind of shape what they, what they would like to see in education. Um, Another thing that I'm doing that's on the horizon is creating a student social justice collective, because I've been seeing this increase in students wanting to do something about it, but not a hundred percent knowing what they want to do. They just know that they want to get together with students who are thinking along the same lines as them, who have this deep hunger for justice, and they want to get together and collaborate across schools 
So I'm trying to, you know, engage in this inquiry process of talking to students about building out the skeleton, building out the outline for that, um, and then getting that off the ground too. Let us know how Ooh. that collective forms. Please keep us engaged okay. and abreast on all the details because that sounds awesome. And if that were around when I was in school, I would have 100% have been all over it. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will definitely check in and keep you both in the loop. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So how can we as community members, as family of students, support and advocate for change in maybe, you know, school districts that may not be doing as much or any of this work? Yeah. Is, it, is this kind of the call to action moment? Yeah. This would be uh, that. We want our marching yes. orders. Okay. <laughs> Give us a list. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll break down a short list for you. Okay. So one, <laughs> <laughs> number one, do the work authentically. Mm. What does that mean to engage in the work authentically? That starts with doing a deep dive in the self and getting to know yourself better, getting to know your own ancestral roots better, um, getting to know your own culture better, getting to know, you know, your own biases better and what you have to do to overcome and disrupt those. Um, thinking about your own power and positionality within um, your sphere of influence as well. So doing the work. Uh, number two, honoring the voices of the people of color and the minoritized communities that have been speaking for so, so, so long. And a lot of times we're just really tired. It's 2021. You know, this is not new. You know, we've seen these um, different moments of uprisings happening and, and kind of the trending of the hashtags happening with different movements. And, you know, I love the digital activism component. And also, how do we take it off the page and honor the voices that have been speaking up for a long time? You know, doing that work to mm. go to Google. Google is a great search engine. <laughs> you can go to it anytime. If you hear a word or a <laughs> phrase or a hashtag that, that you haven't heard before, type it into Google and you'll, you will learn so, so much. Um, so that number three is building solidarities and partnerships. So what does that look like within educational spaces? How do we disrupt this um, sense of hierarchical, racialized, gendered power um, and try to recast power as, um, you know, uh, horizontal? And I'm kind of like bringing in, um, you know, like indigenous um, ontologies, like ways of ways of being, you know, how do we reshape? Um, the education system, not as this top down type of entity, but joining hands and reaching across and reaching, you know, next to to the people next to us to join hands in in this moment of solidarity that we can engage in. Um, and then number four, moving beyond equity to justice, you know, if fairness is so, so important, and equity is so important, and equity has become a buzzword. We can't just create checklists and check the box and pretend like that has solved everything. But how do we continue this movement um, to advocate not just this year or last year, but continuing to push forward in the work? Um, and then lastly, taking an abolitionist approach. I do not like the word reform. It makes me cringe because it's trying to engage in this process <laughs> of changing a system that is inherently oppressive. So what do we need to do mm. to dismantle and disrupt this educational system as we know it and reimagine and rebuild it in ways that are justice driven and healing 
for the communities that have been hurting for so, so long. Ooh, I That's love fun. that. You guys hear that? Get your Frederick <laughs> Douglass on. Get on it. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for that energizing interview. Can we do a couple of fun questions just yes. to get to know Ava a little bit better outside of the work? Okay, cool. Yes. So this is our rapid fire portion of the show. We're going to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. Answer the first thing that comes to mind. Wrong answers do not exist here. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> Favorite quarantine meal? Chicken Caesar salad. Mm. Ooh, yeah. Last book that you and read and loved? Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Oh. Ooh, I'll drop that in the show notes if anyone is looking to do to add some another book to their reading list. I think that's a great suggestion. What was the last purchase that you made that excited you? I went to the outlet mall yesterday. Um, I'm fully vaccinated and I bought a <laughs> pair of <laughs> and I was wearing a mask. <laughs> I'll put that plug in. I I bought a really cute pair of dress pants that I'm excited to wear for when I do go back to in person. That is one thing I remember about Ava. She has the best pants. She always wore like such colored pants. I was always so jealous in class. I always be like, oh, I love your pants. I love, I love different kinds of pants. Yeah. Well, now I have to ask a follow-up. Has your shop, like, has your pants shopping habit changed since the pandemic? Like, have you come out of it like, I want to try this new cut or I'm going to get adventurous and try this print? Yeah, you know, I'm seeing styles kind of shift. So I've been tracking that on Instagram. So I've been buying, you know, clothes accordingly to the mm, style nope. shifts. But I will also say that I literally have not worn dress pants except to try my new ones on yesterday in a year. It's been, you know, <laughs> when I have to dress up nice for a virtual Zoom meeting, I'll wear a nice top and literally leggings or sweatpants with it. No shame. Yeah. And so I'm excited <laughs> to get back to like the full body dress up with, you know, a cute pair of heels. So, yeah. Yes. Looking forward to that moment. Ava was always dressed to the nines in class. All right. You're inspiring me to get excited about getting dressed to the nines again. Thank you for that. Of course. What would be your last meal on earth? I would say my grandma's homemade meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and broccoli with cheese sauce. Ooh. Amazing. Ooh. All really comforting yes. and all really delicious. Yum. It really is. What's your dream my last travel destination? <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be comforting. Holy. <laughs> Holy, fully, and completely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> dream travel destination mm, i always love going back to wadadley mm. uh, you know mm. colonially named as antigua to see my family and i've been there twice um i'd love to, love to go back again to continue learning more um about my family's history through storytelling and sitting on my great aunt's front porch and listening to her just going on and talking about family stories mm. Mm. a good family porch hangout that hasn't happened in a while so i do i have a, a spe <laughs> those have special places in my heart so thank you for for sharing that with us 
Ava, it's been great having you on the Black and Yellow podcast. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. How can our listeners keep up with you and the work that you're doing? They can follow our website at nsd.org slash equity. Um, that's our school. That's my school district that I'm in. That's my department's webpage. There's different resources and opportunities that are on there. Um, I'm also on Instagram at underscore Ava period underscore. <laughs> and I'm also on Facebook if anyone would like to add me on Facebook. <laughs> Perfect. I'm dropping links to all of these in show notes. Thank you so, so much again for chatting with us today. It was great having you on. That's our show, guys. This is the Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to find us, we are on Instagram at Black and Yellow Podcast. Katie and I also roll solo on the gram as well. I'm Alana Webster, but on the gram, I'm at Renegade of Fun. And I'm Katie Ohashi at Diz Villain Scholar. Thank you so much for checking us out. Follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review. It really helps to keep this baby of ours pushing forward. And we'll be back with you next week. Take it easy, guys. Bye.